Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm Mariana Marques, Executive Director of Azimuth World Foundation. One of our current grantees is the Fundación Sobrevivencia Cofan, an indigenous-led organization working to protect the Cofan Bermejo Ecological Reserve. This Cofan ancestral land in Amazon and Ecuador is threatened by growing numbers of illegal miners. Shortly after awarding our grant, we asked the FSC to share some pictures of the Cofan Bermejo Reserve. We were very happily surprised to learn that the stunning images they sent us were taken by photographer Kili Yuyan, whose work we've been following over the past few years. We're obviously not alone in this respect to Kili's work. As an award-winning contributor to National Geographic magazine and other major publications, his stunning images have become powerful conveyors of the stories of human communities connected to the land. From his groundbreaking continuous portrayal of indigenous communities in the Arctic, where he spends months each year, to the moving portraits of standing rock protesters, from documenting the burning practice of the Yuruk and Karuk nations of Northern California, to his travels in, travel, travels in the Navajo Nation, Alaska, Greenland, and Iceland. Kili's work offers an exploration of the human relationship with the natural world from different cultural perspectives. But this approach and Kili's biography are inextricably connected, raised by refugee parents in the US and informed by ancestry that is both Nai Nai Heze, East Asian indigenous, indigenous and Chinese American photography was, as he puts it, one of the ways that would bring, bring me home in this case. And his commitment to indigenous communities goes beyond his images. A member of indigenous photograph and diversity photo Kili actively advocates for the rendering of indigenous narratives by indigenous storytellers. He also builds traditional kayaks and contributes to the revitalization of North, North indigenous East Asian uh, culture. We are so grateful to have Kili on today, and we're also very happy to have Jim Cambites as today discussions partner. Jim is a member of Azimuth's Advisor Committee, as a co-founder of Upward Spiral Films, he has worked to train local native and non-native North Dakotans to build their own film industries while cultivating understanding and better relationships among his community. Kili, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jim, as well, and please take it away. Well, welcome, Kili. And I spent the last uh, weekend watching a lot of your films and looking at your images and reading your thoughts. and. <laughs> yeah, you you had you have so many great insights into two things that I love documentary uh, as a, a subject. Both I'm a documentary filmmaker, but you're a documentary photographer um, and also filmmaker. And uh, I think of this re watching your journey, and and I think, wow, this process of documenting light writing. Um, must have changed your life a lot. Uh, has this, what is the impact that it has had on you having this uh, career choice? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, it's great, great question, Jim, actually. Um, 
not something I think that anyone has ever asked me before. So it's uh, lovely to hear. <laughs> um, documentary did change my life quite a lot. I would say um, I was originally, I started photography very late in my life, uh, you know, in my early thirties. And then uh, I did commercial photography for a while. And I think that was good. It was allowed me to learn the technical stuff, but then, you know, I, I did it for, for a short while, like a year and a half. And then I got burnt out selling things to people very quickly. And so I realized that I needed to do something. And um, I found a consultant and she basically said, you are a very interesting person and come from an interesting background. And it's important for you to investigate that. Um, like it's, in, it's important for you to look at stuff like documentary instead of um, commercial work. And at the time I was like, well, sure <laughs> i didn't really think that much of it um but as i started to go down the rabbit hole i started to realize that it was incredibly powerful you know in the commercial and advertising worlds you're not so much um learning and discovering um what is going on um you're not looking for insights in the world you're you're kind of crafting um messages for people to essentially sell things, you know? Um, and it's a very, very different kind of feeling. And the first place that I had to go was that I had to really sort of dive into the complicated family politics that are, that are my life that I grew up with, but also I mostly try to avoid <laughs> between the um, the indigenous side of my family, the part of the, the family that, uh, that, you know, most of the rest of the family was just Chinese and ran, ran away from the uh, communist revolution. And so there were a lot of really difficult things in there that untangling those things, I, I sort of realized over time were going to be my road uh, towards, um, towards becoming a better photographer. But ultimately, it really helped me heal as a human being, it helped me like get closer to my family helped me understand humanity better and uh, going down this road like really helped me learn a lot more about what it means to be um human in a very complicated world full of deep difficult history <laughs> um yeah and it was just the very beginning you know but it, it certainly started me down that road and i am i'm much more empathetic um compassionate human being that's much more interested in how things became the way they are than i used to be uh, so that was a really monumental change in my life, for sure. Sure. Well, in your background, yeah. because you have ancestry that's Nanai and indigenous people in Siberia, and then you also have uh, Chinese lineage as well, and then you grew up in America. So it's like three ex extremely different worlds. They're, they're almost like three opposites in a triangle and I know you you've mentioned that there you felt there's a invisibility um in in some areas of of your past as far as being represented or not represented in the media and um there's indigeneity there's a visibility question and there's photography and what happens when you take a, uh, a photo you know is it and even the language of photography some people say it's so it's so aggressive and warlike. You take or you shoot somebody, or you know, you grab that. So, how a person approaches photography, you know, photo meaning light and graphy writing, so light writing, or you know, what is photography um, for you? I, I I know you. I've read a lot of interesting words that that you've shared about it. Um, things like 
uh, a photo is the period at the end of a sentence. And I'm wondering, can yeah. you explain how you feel about photography and or these three worlds that interconnect for you? Well, the, that that particular statement, photography, um, is um, you know making a photograph like actually clicking a shutter is a period at the end of a sentence, and that's a quote that I can't remember where I came by it, and it's a part of it because like I say it a lot because um, it is it, it it encapsulates how I feel about making photographs quite a bit, um, but the you know the thing about photography. Um, uh, is that um, that particular statement really is um, in some ways even more better suited to storytelling in general, like photographic storytelling. You know, um, when you're making um, a film, uh, the sort of bringing in all the pieces together at the end in the editing process is, um, it's it's not just a period, it's a whole it's a whole chunk of the sentence, right? It's a very, very large segment of what it is that you do. You know, with a photograph, um, a lot of the like sort of technical magic happens in just that moment when you click that shutter. Um, but what we, no one ever sees and um, we often are trying to help people understand is that a photograph isn't just, you happen to be standing there at the right time in the right place and able to take that photograph. People don't think very much about how does he got to be there at the right time in the right place with the right set of relationships so that people don't immediately look at you and are like, what are you doing here? And kick you out. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so I, one of the reasons I really love uh, photography that is actually different than say, um, photography and writing um, in the sort of old school way of doing things in the photo, the classical photo essay or the, the classic sort of, New York Times or National Geographic story is that we're really very non-invasive. Like we can go in and do uh, work and it could just be me. You know, I, I could be there for six months and um, eventually the community that I'm working in, I become a part of that community, which is really lovely. And um, it's not, um, it's very different than maybe the old school mentality of a fly on the wall. Like I'm not really a fly in a wall per se I suppose you could think of it that way but I'm a fly in a wall only because I'm I'm just part of the workings of the of the clock now you know like I'm actually there and I'm part of it and this is one of the things I find difficult about filmmaking actually um, many types of filmmaking is that you have a crew generally of many people and as soon as you have more than one person the dynamic changes you're no longer really able to just kind of fold into what goes on but you kind of suddenly you're um you're your own thing uh, um and you're like a much more substantial force so um, it's very 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 different kind of thing but um yeah the photograph for me like photography and storytelling are very very much the same you know documentary really changed me in that way i don't really think about photographs as um uh standalone single images anymore you know it's always telling a story and uh, I just find that far more powerful, far more interesting. In a way, like, um, you know, like a, the photo essay or a series of photographs is kind of the happy medium for me between something like um, taking a single picture um, versus making a film. It's right in between there. You're, you're able to actually deliver a message, which you, it's very difficult to do that with a single photograph, even with a caption. Um, but it's not at the opposite end of things where it's so um, it changes the situation so much. 
while you're making it that uh, you're able to actually get something that sort of uh, you're sort of to spit out uh, a thread of truth that I think would be really hard, difficult to make otherwise. And I'm not sure if that's where you're going with that, but <laughs> there it is. <laughs> sure. Um, your work, you know, I think you explained it in, in that you build a relationship and you might have to stay there for six months. Um, how do you build that trust and, and what, what happens in this process and why do you do it this way? Well, I think um, I think building the trust now is a little bit easier for me because I have a lot of experience around um, small communities and indigenous communities and communities that are not my own culture. You know, um, I recognize like you know, mostly you know I'm even though I'm all these other cultures, I'm mostly my experience is mostly that of an American immigrant. You know, and so um, I tend to see things first and foremost through the lens of like this kind of weird Western. Uh, viewpoint, which is really unusual in the world. Most of the world doesn't really see um, life and existence the same way. And um, but most of the storytellers come from the West. And so uh, the first thing that is, it's the first part of my life has been spending enough time around other communities to kind of get to know the rules. Um, and there's a lot. You know, I mean, there's a really fundamental difference. And I think this is the hardest thing for anyone to I can say it in a second. Uh, but it's really hard for you to do in practice. And the the, the statement is basically, um, you know, in Western culture, people have rights. Um, and in uh, non-Western cultures, people have responsibilities. They have obligations. You know, um, in the West, you can do anything you want to unless you're told otherwise. In the most of the rest of the world, you can't do anything unless you're specifically allowed to. You know, it's a very different thing. This is almost the opposite. Not quite, you know, there's a lot of in between. <laughs> um, but it is a little bit like that. You know, um, native communities um, especially are very much at the far end of that spectrum. You know, you have to ask the permission of your elders. And until you know what you can and can't do in a culture, you can sort of assume that you can't really do anything. You know, and so spending a lot of time around small communities and native communities, you start to learn the rules that are somewhat um, applicable across the board, you know, and then uh, and that helps a lot um, in terms of being able to do it. Like, for example, you know, um, when you, it, it's really common for, for someone um, from New York, say, to go to India and you know just just like land in mumbai and then uh, wander around the rural areas and be like hey look these are really cool people and you know mo many many indian people love being photographed they don't really have trouble um being photographed but there are lots of things for which it's really not okay to photograph <laughs> and um you land there and so you feel like oh gosh people, some people love being photographed this country must you know this country and that generalization is that you know you can photograph anything um, but there's many, many things you can't. And uh, you, you sort of like, sort, especially when you get into rural communities, people will really hate on you if you are pulling the camera out at inappropriate times, taking pictures of things that shouldn't be, that they can't photograph themselves, you know, that they can't do it on their, they're not even allowed to with their camera phones, you know? And so um, like understanding that and paying attention and observing and just like even just starting from that place of like, I need to spend some time here to get to know, going on is um is the biggest thing 
The other thing, of course, is at some point, it really, really helps to have, um, you know, like to build trust in the community, you go there, really helps to be introduced the right way. You know, like um, at this point in time, I have a pretty large network of people that I know that um, can introduce me. Um, but it's not always easy, especially, you know, um, the further away that you get from your network, the harder it is. There are places like Mongolia where I have to reach out to people who like fixers because I don't know anybody um, that um, that knows someone that knows me directly. So you have to like, you can't just sort of do introductions that way. And you just have to go in humbly and quietly and slowly and then go in with the expectation that you're going to spend a month there. You know, like on a minimum, you're going to spend a month there um, and nothing worth photographing is going to happen in the first couple of weeks because <laughs> there's no trust there yet. So it's really hard. Is that I think if you are um, like a tourist uh, with a short amount of time to do something, just kind of know that it's tough to do it on the first trip when you only have a week. It's really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. You can see yeah. that your images have a different approach. And it is that to get to that quality, to get to that intimacy um, of an image or uniqueness, uh, and to get to that National Geographic level, let's just, you know, use that as a kind of um, a sort of benchmark. Uh, but, of course, your work is is um, is expansive in so many realms in, in the film and, and, and every other realm, you know, the journalism part of it and the nature of journalism part of it um, is just a fraction of it. it. You're really revealing a lot about humanity, and it, it shows that you have to spend a, a lot of time in order to do that right. And and you have little details that, uh, like a little land acknowledgement in the end of, you know, Lens of the World, and, and a lot of other things that, that seem so simple, but it seems like the rest of the photography world um, and even documentary filmmaking world um, hasn't caught on to yet. Um, where did you learn to, like, honor the indigenous traditions and, and do simple things like land acknowledgements and, and things like that. How did, what was that process like? Honestly, they're, they're, um, those things are, I feel like almost like very basic sort of things. Um, in a way, uh, you could say with land acknowledgements, I almost feel like I've moved beyond land acknowledgements. Uh, certainly in the indigenous community, we feel like, um, Lines acknowledgement is like the place that you start from, and then eventually you can do away with it because um, the story itself you're telling, the whole thing is a land acknowledgement. <laughs> um, you know, I think um, it really helps to be a part of a greater community. And um, I think this is a tough thing in general uh, for a lot of uh, storytellers who don't come from the community that they're going to cover um, because there is a network of people. Um, if you know, if you're in Latin America or Central America or Amazonia or, um, uh, you know, uh, Micronesia, all of those places have their own specific um, network of people for whom if you kind of tune into the conversation and it's actually not that hard these days, you know, like Twitter, for example, it's easy to get on into Twitter and just sort of listen to what people are saying. And yeah, it's a huge, huge garbage <laughs> patch <laughs> Twitter is, but um, there are other places, you know, like Facebook um, and also um, places like Indigenous Photograph, which is um, 
in the collection of professional photographers who are all um, have indigenous ancestry. And so it's not, um, I don't know, I feel like you get involved in that community in some way. You don't, you're just not, you're not just working inside your own tiny little bubble, which I do think it's really easy for freelancers to do. Even freelance filmmakers who have to work with other people, you're like inside of your own little world and reaching out and beyond that is really tough. I, I often uh, sort of feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Chinese and I'm Nanai and I'm an immigrant first on all those things. Like I'm a son <laughs> um, and an uncle before I'm a photographer. And like, I think if you don't think that, then um, you don't think those things, then you don't think of yourself as a human first. It can be a little tough to um, to be a part of other communities. You know, where so much of the West is like, especially every day it goes on, we're pounded more and more into this notion of being individuals and uh, fighting. Like you know, sort of. I guess you could say sometimes I feel like fighting all of the tendencies that capitalism and individualism, all these kinds of things. Um, the more they fight those tendencies in our own lives, the more power it gives us just because everyone else is doing the exact opposite thing. <laughs> Swimming upstream is really useful because then you're, um, you have a unique skill set. <laughs> and you just want to look at it from a pure efficiency perspective, which I am Asian, so it's hard to get away from that. <laughs> well, you know, and my wife and I, we've traveled a lot all over the planet uh, for you know, many years. And um, we had a very similar feeling, observation like you, where it's almost like America is doing its own thing and then all the rest of the world is completely different and in a different yeah. That's right. It's, sometimes you're in India and you feel like you're in, in South America or, or, you know, even other European countries. You know, it's just like... so. The word, I guess, um, that's been really popular is, you know, colonization. And is American yeah. media colonized than the rest of the world's media? Um, and what's the future? And, and what do, what should media move towards? I, I feel like you have you have a strong critique of media and and what it should do. And I think what what you do shows another way. How would you summarize what that is or what you wish the world would understand or other media makers would understand when they make um, content? Well, I think that the first and foremost thing that's already happening in the world, um, the biggest thing um, that actually uh, National Geographic explorer Noel Cox said, um, he's, a, he's a Kenyan um, who's um, really well-spoken. So I'm just quoting his words. He says, if you want to change the story, change the storyteller. Um, and, um, you know, like that, that carries, it's a little bit more, uh, there's, there's, you know, like that's not the full sentiment that I would say, I would say in a sense, we're not trying to get rid of the way that people still tell stories in the, in the colonial, colonial um, bastion that is America. We, we are just trying to add voices to that story, to the stories, you know, it's the most important thing. Like, um, Sure, it's really cool to see what um, an American person thinks when they like go to Hokkaido to photograph um, cranes or or snow mon snow monkeys. But it's even more interesting to see like, well, what is what does a Chinese photographer, what does a Russian photographer see when they go to those places? What does a Japanese person who lives there see 
when they see those places, they come away with really different things, you know, and it's not even a question of like, that's just a wildlife nature thing. There's not this sort of deep cultural thing. Yet when you start to look at the pictures, you start to realize, actually, there is really different. The Japanese people see snow monkeys in a totally different way. Um, actually, one of my, some of my favorite work ever done over there is by Jasper Doest, who is um, Dutch. And, you know, he, he goes over there to Japan and he's looking at it. It's still got, you know, kind of a European vibe to it. He, but he's looking at um, snow monkeys and monkeys in uh, like where a lot of the animals themselves are like used for human purposes. And, um, you know, so that's the thing that catches its attention. Whereas the Japanese, by and large, that's sort of like such a daily part of their existence. It's sort of unnoticeable to a Japanese person, to many Japanese people, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the first thing, you know, uh, is that more storytellers equals better. The other thing, though, that's happening in the, the um, journalism world, I think it's really wonderful, is there's a move to what we call Call solutions journalism. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Um, it's certainly in America, and there's something called the Solutions Journalism Network. I think at this point in time, people are just really tired of hearing like, "Oh, climate change, this, everything's falling apart, the world is falling apart." Particularly in America, we have the most negative um, media in the world. You know, um, it drives sales. So I get it. <laughs> but like, the truth is, the world isn't any really any more negative than it was 100 years ago like in a, in a way you look at like life 150 years ago and life was far more terrible for the majority of people not for everybody but for a majority of people and so yet you if you look at a newspaper now you would think that the world is just like burning up in flames uh, and everything is you know we're all we're all doomed to the apocalypse any any moment solutions journalism is just this notion like actually most of the problems that we need to solve have already been solved somewhere. Maybe not at the scale that we need to, not a little, because we haven't solved climate change. <laughs> but there's all these little local ways in which climate <clears throat> change issues have been tackled very significantly. You know, people are doing it in the Amazon. I mean, shoot, you're talking about like hunter-gatherers, like the Kafan, you guys are working with, they do it in the Amazon. And it's amazing, like with no resources. Um, and of course, you hear all the regular stuff. You know, Elon Musk is doing it with Tesla, like the exact opposite way. People are doing it in all kinds of ways. And when we report on solutions, it's um, people paying a lot more attention. And you just mentioned on, and uh, that ecological reserve is really dear to us. And that was mm -hmm. why we. Yeah. Um, and could you tell us a little bit, like, share some of your stories or impressions from uh, your time there? Yeah, the Kafan are um, an amazing uh, culture. Those five communities are just, they're lovely. They're all really kind of different from each other. So they're really amazing. Um, I was so incredibly impressed because uh, my contact slash host slash fixer slash do everything person um, uh, was Ugo Lusitante. And uh, Ugo is, is a young person who was basically, when he was just a child, like 10 years old, had to leave his community um, to learn Spanish and then to, and then uh, went to the United States later, um, actually moved to Seattle, which is really funny because I'm here in Seattle, <laughs> but I had no idea he was here as a young person. And then he did college at Brown University, he learned English, he did all these things. I mean, he started as hunter-gatherer, like, as a 10-year-old, all he wanted to do was catch fish. And um, 
hunt for podcasts you and so um and didn't speak anything other than Ainge. so for him it's really like a traumatic experience to be ripped out from the forest and living in this life which is not to say there's not like there wasn't anything modern or anything like that but the world is very different that the inhabits now and uh, you really see it um so he's now a leader and like the thing that ugo did had to do is actually a strategy that the Kofan do in order to save themselves um from save their forest from being destroyed save their homes from being destroyed like they realized um a long while ago in the like late 80s early 90s that um, sending someone to the outside world to learn how to speak the language of law to speak the language of environmental conservation all that was really helpful to them and so they keep doing it they kind of keep sending people who are appropriate oftentimes they're the people who are like I think the elders kind of recognize uh, the families and the young people who are best suited, who are the most responsible, the least selfish, you know, who are able to go out and do the community something. And it's kind of terrible because it's like a, it's a horrible, almost sentence in a way. People have been doing it since the beginning of time, but it's almost a sentence in a way. We're going to banish you, um, you know, Prince of the Kofan. <laughs> to go to this foreign land to learn their ways so that you can come back and help us all, you know, and it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. Um, and um, so my impression of it is that the Kofan are um, these hunter gatherers who are surrounded by um, other indigenous peoples in this forest, but that even though the world is uh, day by day, is like falling apart and changing really dramatically, that they still have these amazing strategies that you that take advantage of the modern world and are able to kind of wield it almost like a weapon. So, and it's really impressive. I don't think that, um, you know, it's, it's just one of many strategies that they have. And lots of indigenous communities have something, have things like this, but the Kofan are particularly good at it, uh, I would say. I think probably because more than anything, they've had more threat to their lands and to their livelihood uh, for longer than anyone else than not in America, just about, and at least in terms of oil development on their land. So they, um, they, they're really impressive, but yeah, they just, they live such a beautiful life over there. Um, you know, they, because some people work really hard, like Ugo, there are lots of people in the communities that are able to live relatively simple, um, it's a carefree, but you know, relatively simple lives that are not that far off from the way that they lived, you know, a hundred years ago. Like they may not, it might not look the same. The clothing is different. And there's lots of modern tools and things like that. But in their heart, in, you know, sort of the spirit of the way they carry themselves and how they spend their free time and what they enjoy doing, they're still able to do most of that: fishing, hunting, you know, medicinal plants, shamanism. All those things still exist. It's amazing when you think about how much the outside world is trying to <laughs> is trying to destroy all of that in the process of getting resources from the Amazon. Unknowingly destroying it, you know. I, I yes, imagine. unknowingly destroying it. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Normal things that we eat and whatever things we buy for our houses, not knowing the fact for sure. And you know, when when you're in a in a culture like that, an ancient culture, um, and seeing all these natural indigenous ways that our ancestors all um, thrived on, 
uh, wherever we were from. There was a connection to the earth in a very different world. And then uh, do you ever stop and think about the person who's going to read this in a National Geographic or somewhere else in, in New York City or some other city? And you think about that viewer, uh, the audience, and, and what's that like for you? Um, you know, uh, when I think of the audience, the first audience I always think of is the community who I'm covering. <laughs> like, I want, uh, like, I, I know when the story comes out that um, I'm going to get a bunch of copies and the Kofan are going to get them. And probably the biggest effect it's going to have, uh, uh, period, is that young Kofans are going to get it and they're going to see someone like Ugo in there and they're going to be like, oh my God, that's my uncle, you know? Um, and, um, you know, it's my uncle fishing and it makes them want to be like, just proud to be who they are. Proud to be, you know, like it makes things like fishing look really cool compared to um, the alternatives that are beckoning all the time, which might be to go to the city and uh, get a job <laughs> in an office or something like that. Uh, so I think that's the biggest one, but the other, you know, the, I do think, the other audiences are, of course, important. Um, there are lots of influences in the world. Um, and oftentimes, I think um, when we're writing the story, both me and the writer, we're always thinking about you know, the amount of influence that we have, especially at National Geographic. And so it's great that people all over the world are going to see it, uh, particularly these like rich, wealthy countries are going to see it. But where the places really aimed at, in some ways, um, are the um the influential people who are on the border who don't know much necessarily about indigenous issues um don't know that um supporting these small indigenous communities with a very small amount of money can have dramatic consequences not just for the people and not just for human rights but dramatic consequences for things that they really care about, like the Amazon rainforest for climate change, you know, like these really huge things. And just um, these people who might like be on the fence politically or be on the fence, um, you know, in terms of uh, their education about, like they might, might even, uh, actually sometimes it's really targeted towards people and a lot of people know a lot about the environment, don't, but know very little about um, the fact that indigenous peoples occupy some 40% of the world's natural areas, like pristine natural natural, natural areas. I mean, we're, there's no way we're gonna conserve 30% of the world's natural areas by 2030 without including indigenous peoples in a massive way. It's just not going to happen. So um, I think that National Geographic is the place for um, a lot of people to sort of, not only just for the first time encountering this information, but just to push people over the edge. You might have been thinking like, oh, indigenous peoples, Mostly what you hear about them is protests and, um, you know, like you hear a lot of sort of negative things about them unless it's drumming or dancing. And um, what I'm trying to, to help those people understand is actually they hold all the keys to the environment these days. You know, indigenous communities hold all the keys to the environment. Um, and yeah, like the rest of the rich, wealthy countries have to do stuff about the other things, the Canadian boreal forest and all that. But um there's so much that if you support native communities can be done for not that much money. Um, and um, yeah, it's like very pragmatic uh, just from that point of view. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And 
and and you you hear different numbers. Any sometimes I've read up to eighty five percent of the world's biodiversity is in indigenous land, controlled by indigenous people. Some say forty. You know, I've heard a lot of different numbers on different variables, but the overarching message is always that um, why don't we have a system in place to do this? And 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 maybe decolonization is the what is the western way to start enter into entering into that consciousness i i love how how you described it there um as you know you can do the most with the littlest amount you can help the world in the most um uh with the very littlest by getting it indigenous led i know there's a land back movement um which uh scares a lot of uh, a lot of traditional landowners <laughs> hear that movement um and and there's there's a lot happening right now it's like we've rocketed forward in the last four years especially or six years and maybe even decade but you know some people say that a lot of that was connected to the the movement at standing rock and that that sort of united a lot of the indigenous folks from the, the whole planet and and re yeah. reignited fire um what was your experience um or what are your thoughts? I don't think it's that? just Standing Rock. I think it's also Black Lives Matter, actually. Um, you know, it's kind of funny that this sort of like political movements that seem like they're on the edge there. They, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of weird in a sense. Maybe even Trump pushed this all over the edge um, because the in the backlash against uh, a, a pol politically, the backlash against um, Trump helped a lot of people. Um, a lot of really intense um, people on the left um, start to just sort of realize, well, we can't wait anymore. <laughs> we need to push back against this kind of stuff. It, it's kind of funny, actually, that I, I mentioned like uh, the, the uh, progressive left in some ways, because I think in some ways the story um, that I'm working on right now that includes the Kofan is actually very much targeted towards actually the progressive left because for, for progressive left, um, in the West, in general, a, a lot of the a lot of fat people um, that are older that haven't been keeping up with what's been happening in the last five years or so, um, a lot of them, or just maybe not on board, they're they're older, come for a different time, just don't realize how much um, how much this idea that natural areas and human beings don't mix is like embedded in their psyches. In the West, really, you, you, this is very, 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 very strong notion that if you add humans or leave humans in nature, that nature will be destroyed. Um, and that's the key thing. I'm talking about pushing people over the edge. This is the one of the key ideas that we're trying to kind of um, help people realize is not the case. When you look around the world, it's very, very clear that the places where there are indigenous peoples living, those are the places that are left. The, the pristine air, 40% of the world's pristine areas are left because indigenous peoples are on them. You know, <laughs> they're not national parks. I, I always use this like great, great statistic. Um, it's uh, very revealing in some ways. Like the Kofan, they, I think they estimate that they, the Kofan area of land is about the size of Yosemite National Park in the U.S. or Yellowstone, about the same size, um, is about one and a half times the size of Yosemite. Um, and the Kofan spend about $30,000 a year in order to maintain their land, you know, currently. It's not enough, but that's how much they get. Um, 
in order for people to be able to take the time to do the legal work um, and uh, to be able to just support people like with some rice or food or, or e even like um, childcare while they're dealing with all these legal issues. Um, Yosemite, on the other hand, has a budget of $33 million a year. Um, it's like, you know, orders of magnitude greater than the amount of money that the Kofan has. And yeah, sure, Yosemite is beautiful and it's pristine. And it has, there's more going on in Yosemite. So it does cost more, of course, but think about that. 30,000 versus $33 million. That's a huge, huge, huge difference. Um, so, I mean, um, and yeah, that's also that essentially Yosemite can be conserved without human beings living in it. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Wow. Um, you know, and if one sits back and thinks about uh, Native American indigenous populations here on this continent, um, they would be, you know, shaking their head all over. I mean, they, it's like they've been telling, I've been, I've spent the last six years, a lot of time with uh, the local indigenous people here and just saying, okay, you know, I want to learn to see through your eyes. I want to understand. And and it's unbelievable when you when you look at national parks through indigenous eyes, and when you look at the yes. whole whole of America through um, indigenous eyes, that that shift that, that happened. Um, and with uh, with with your work and, and the way you're talking about things, uh, it's it's you're really arguing for a, a shift uh, for man to start seeing themselves as connected again and, and relationality and you, you had a quote where you said that um i don't remember it exactly but it was something to the effect of uh their people you know, with um like a, a whale body or a fish body or in a fish suit or something like to, to communicate to us that each being is the equal level and deserves the equal mm -hmm. respect um that that we have um or, are there other things like that that you that um, you, you wish people would understand uh, in the normal pop culture world, or are there things like that you just you know you're dying for people to get through your photos, and that's what comes out. In the art? Yeah, I mean to, to tell you the truth, I think that honestly, the land the land teaches us if we're listening. Oh, by the way, before I before I tackle a question, I also need to show you. Um, See, I think I got it. Oh, yeah, here. So this was the cover from July's National Geographic. Um, yeah, the first thing you see is Quanta chasing a horse. Um, but the other thing that you see in the background, this is why the reason you shot it here, um, shot this cover image here, is because that's Monument Valley. Um, Monument Valley in Utah slash Arizona. Um, this is a famous, iconic photographic location, one of the most beautiful places in the world, you know. And... Um, this is, the, I think, one of the things that almost nobody in the world knows, unless you live in the Southwest, is that Monument Valley has uh, <laughs> has Navajo Diné living in it, as it always has. <laughs> it's a sacred place, but sacred does not mean not having people. In fact, sacred specifically means you have people there to take care of it. And I think this is that that it's like there could be no better um, way to think about it but what in a major difference like monument valley is a navajo nation tribal park it's their it's their national park and very very different than say 
Arches National Park, which has no humans. And once again, the, the cost for maintaining it is gigantic compared to Monument Valley. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, the, the federal government needs to understand. I mean, is that, is that being communicated? Is there a chance that national parks can have a can have a shift towards um, uh, indigenous um, care more so? Mm, I think so, but I think that if we, I think that what's going to end up happening, I think the national park system is its own thing at this point in time, and that that's totally fine. I don't think that I think there's plenty of room actually for there to be parks that already have had the people removed for a long time. For them to be continue going on because people do enjoy that like and it's it's all it's its own thing now you know it's created it's not going anywhere but i do think that um as sovereignty goes back to tribal nations that a lot of the places that they have held sacred they're going to continue to keep them sacred and um you will find out places like for example with the um the blackfoot confederacy um they've got beautiful land near Glacier National Park. Glacier is obviously really incredible, but the Blackfoot um, are doing, um, creating their own uh, Blackfoot Tribal Park over there as well. And it's going to be extremely gorgeous and there are going to be people living on it. <laughs> um, and because they're sovereign, they get to make the rules and they get to make the rules about how that national park will be, who's going to be there and who's not um, and all that kind of stuff. And so as we continue to see the sovereignty of native peoples increase all around the world, they can do these things, you know, um, and in some sense, it almost even like ups the ante, you know, like now as soon as the Blackfoot say that they're creating this, um, this tribal national park, well, all eyes are on them. Uh, they know that they can't really mess it up. Like the, this is a great opportunity for them basically to look, show everyone, Hey, we got this thing. Look how beautiful it is. This is a national treasure here in the United States, and we're taking care of it. Um, so, yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's really the road forward. Well, and and with with photography um, involving more indigenous people, as you say, not just the the, the content, but the the photographer. Um, that's uh, that's going to shift a lot of. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's certainly going to shift. Um, yeah, there's stuff that people from inside the communities themselves, especially, know um, or have heard, or the context that they have is so much deeper. You know, having lived their whole lives there or around it, you know, like there's things that they'll we never know otherwise. Like I, I was just talking to um, uh, Camino Weasel Moccasin, who's uh, Blackfoot on the um, on the Alberta side or the Canadian side. And um, she was a park um, a park ranger at um, Riding on Stone, which is this um, provincial British Columbia or Alberta provincial park, which is a beautiful place where there's a big hoodoo who's kind of standing up, this sandstone-like monument standing up. And there's a bunch of um, petroglyphs all over. It's obviously a park because it's amazing. And you go and you see all of these petroglyphs tapped into the stone. Some of our pictographs also like they're painted onto the stone. And some of them are very old, thousands of years old. It's amazing that they've survived so long. And when lots of people like look at certain um, certain 
you know, she's, she's, I think she's the only, she, at the time that she was a ranger, she was the only native uh, ranger there to do interpretation of the pictographs and stuff. And people will always ask, there's one pictograph that looks kind of like a fish or like a wolf or something like that, you know? Um, and um, people asked about it all the time. That's what they assumed. And then, so she was like, no, I vaguely recall that my elders said there was something different. So she asked around her elders and she found it actually wasn't a fish or a wolf. It's actually a map. It was a map of some sacred sites that, um, and the teeth of the wolf slash fish were actually um, mountains, sacred mountains or sacred um, hills. That and that that map showed the location of those. And there's no way looking at that you would come up with that unless you have that oral history handed down to interpret it. You know, no one from the outside would be able to know that thing you know <laughs> that's the kind of like amazing insight that it's like i mean it's it's sort of like it's almost like indiana jones archaeology like oh my god look at this thing it's a treasure map to this incredible thing but still that kind of insight exists and we only have access to it um it only still exists in the world if we have storytellers you know she was an interpreter at the park and not a um you know a photographer or a journalist but that those worlds are merging as we bring storytellers in um, from their own communities. Well, I have a, a lot more questions for you. I, I, st I started thinking we were hitting close to the hour mark, so we, we need to okay. I, I was wondering, uh, just a, a very micro question. Uh, so do you have teams of indigenous people that you find wherever you are photogra uh, photographing where you'll be like kind of mentoring them so they, they take over this? Yeah, everywhere I go, generally, there's um, young people who are interested um, in uh, media jobs and like media work nowadays. Um, there's, it's not like uh, the world, especially in the last five years, things have really changed the last five, 10 years. Um, the kind of technology has gotten more accessible. Cameras have gotten cheaper. And, Instagram and social media has brought this kind of world to everyone's doorstep. Now the infrastructure has gotten better. Like even, even um, the even some of the remote Kapan villages, not all of them, but some of them have internet. Like one tiny little, <laughs> one tiny little hut that you have to stand next to in the middle of the <laughs> in the middle of the heat under the sun in order to get. So it's which I think is actually kind of nice because it means they can get their internet but not spend their lives on the internet <laughs> um but they see that this kind of stuff is being created and so yeah there's opportunities to mentor and um certainly it's something that i have been doing um i take my time out they i often actually um try to um, use them as fixers or interpreters or people they often like because they they know their community really well and it gives me the opportunity to work with them not just from the point of view like here's something that we can i can use um it's here's an opportunity for you to be around and see how we work um, at this really high level. This is something you should to think about. And I'm also trying to really encourage these young people to think bigger. A lot of um, Indigenous peoples are really used to thinking small and local, which, of course, is the whole point of being Indigenous. You know, um, lowercase i Indigenous is about being of the place. So local is what it's all about. But I, encourage, I am trying to encourage them to think bigger because... Um, you can't, not only can you not build a career out of just reporting on your own place, um, 
by it even bigger than that, they're going to have insights um, in the to other communities um, close or even far away that no one else is going to have. Uh, and their ability to see those things is really powerful. So um, we both have uh, the current project I'm on, National Geographic, is something called a second assistant program. So we actually hire indigenous assistants for each leg of the journey, every place that they go. Um, it hasn't been possible to hire um, an indigenous assistant, but at the very least, a local um, someone who's from that region or area specifically, you know, um, all of this is still building. We're bringing photo camps to some of these areas to train young people who are interested in this kind of stuff. You, you know, everyone has a camera phone now. So like you have the ability to report on this kind of stuff um, that the technology has gotten so that people can do it. So it's just a question of learning um, the uh, the technical aspects, which is, I think, probably the easiest thing for people to learn and tackle. The harder part of it is to learn how to do the storytelling. And um, part of that also involves just people, uh, these young people learning to think bigger um, and to think more ab more abstract. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I, I was just gonna let the last question be, um, is there anything you'd like to share that I didn't ask? Is there a question you wish I would have asked um, of my other questions? Uh, is there something you, you really uh, want to share with the world about um, uh, your journey or just <laughs> you or, you know, something you wish the world would understand that you have been um, a vision that you've seen from the work that you've done? How? To be honest, I think that you have been extremely insightful and asked all kinds of really good questions <laughs> that I normally don't get in any kind of interview. Um, so it, they're great. Thank you for that already. Um, I'd say that I think that there's one uh, one insight I wanted to share. It's just that in general, even though we're talking about um, like a, a place like National Geographic, we might get six months to work on a huge story that's up for multiple years, you know, six months over two or three years of work. Um, I guess this project I'm on right now is probably 10 months over two years. Um, but regardless, um, they, that is National Geographic is kind of the last one standing. It's like the last publication that is willing to send people, has the funding to send people out for these long, long, deep immersions. And, um, and it's a really big shame. I think it's, um, I think people um, should realize that the kind of reporting that we have now uh, uh, just doesn't really afford us the time to go deep. People distrust media precisely because we don't get enough time to do things really deeply and correctly anymore. You know, the more resource places that, that can do it do. Um, but yeah, like, sure, the New York Times uh, can do this kind of stuff deeply, um, but they have a very short period of time to do it in. Um, and they have a ton of resources to throw at it, but that's fine when you're covering like uh, whatever an election cycle or something like that. It's not really fine when you're covering things that are much, much deeper um, and that are, are about different cultures for whom yeah. you don't get insider views on. And um, so I hope that uh, people out there are able to support the like the few um, publications out, that are out there that are uh, still standing that allow us to actually do this kind of work. So even if a piece, someone comes from the inside, you know, if you come from your own culture, you still need a lot of time in order to do it right. <laughs> there's no, there's no getting around it. 
um, the best pictures, the best journalism, the best stories, all this kind of stuff comes from that. And I think the flip side of it all also is um, the flip side of it is that people are also not paying attention to long form stories anymore um, because of our attention spans. And um, I think that ultimately this is kind of a big problem. And I, I encourage people to um, subscribe to print magazines, not, not because it helps support the, the magazine itself, but honestly, just because it's a better way to read. Like, yeah, the New Yorkers, like you, we remember the time when the New Yorkers used to pile up in the bathroom or whatever, and you never read them feel guilty about it but um having the new yorker there like sitting there where you like read a couple pages while you're eating lunch or something like that and it's still open it's got a bookmark you come back and you'll finish reading it and that's like we need that training in our lives again just to know what it's like to read something longer and i mean it's just an article and a story in the new yorker right it's not that many words let alone a book <laughs> But I just I notice this in myself as uh, as well as all the people around me. Um, it doesn't matter how much great um, work we do if no one is out there to read it. You know, if, if we've all lost our attention spans to the point where we can only pay attention to the 196 characters or whatever, <laughs> you know, on Twitter. So, I yeah. appreciate um, your work and uh, getting to know you has been great. And I know that you're doing it right. Thanks, when you, that you, you don't really care so much what the audience thinks when they read it as much as your, the first reaction from the people that you're representing is more important. Um, that's mm. the first thing. That's a big difference. And uh, what a different world um, journalism would have and uh, documentary, photography, film, all the arts would have if they, they gave that primacy to the, the people who are in the art and making it with you. I think there's a certain level of accountability too that's really good uh, that that happens, you know, like being in the business world, everyone knows who, uh, not everyone, but, you know, people generally figure out who I am uh, fairly quickly and see, uh, like, I can't get away with doing stuff that isn't right. <laughs> Whereas you're kind of sort of pseudo-anonymous and reporter that comes in from the outside who um, the indigenous world is that deeply tuned into they they can get away with it because they'll disappear and, and it doesn't matter if community gets mad at them if they never go back there again it's not a no big deal to them right yeah yeah but on that note incidentally um i i kind of i i was uh, a little nervous when this thing came, when this came out it was like we're reporting on so many different nations and yeah i could spend lots of time with them but um it's um like you know, native Twitter can be harsh <laughs> with the criticism, and I was a little concerned about it. But, you know, I think I felt like we did a good job when um, it wasn't very long afterwards, like just a few weeks after the story came out, that people started sending me pictures. Friends of mine started sending me pictures from powwows where there are bootleg T-shirts with that National Geographic cover on it. <laughs> and I was like, all right, that's a good sign you're doing good in the world like no award or recognition could be better than that right that's that's how you know you're doing a good job yeah thanks for getting on the show and um we appreciate uh, you taking time for this conversation um great luck and and we'll follow your work thanks jim yeah it's been great uh, chatting absolutely thank you for listening to connecting the dots 
an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.